Well, thank you for uh, coming this morning. Today we're doing the end of 1 Samuel. And so we made it, kind of. 1 Samuel is part of a larger narrative. Uh, like I said last week, uh, <clears throat> depending on which ancient text you use, the, the historical narrative of Israel is broken up into different sections in, in ancient manuscripts. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, that tended to be two different books, First Kingdoms and Second Kingdoms. First Kingdoms is First and Second Samuel that we have today in our English translations. Second Kingdoms was First and Second Kings. Last week I made the comment about the Masoretic text and I had a very knowledgeable person come up to me afterwards and say, what is the Masoretic text? And I'm like, oh, okay, maybe I should explain that. <clears throat> Sometimes I talk about things and I don't realize I haven't explained them. I'll talk about that just very briefly. So in the, somewhere around the third century, whoop, third century BC, the Jews that were spread throughout the Mediterranean region began to speak Greek as their formal language. Um, it, Greek became, after Alexander the Great conquered the known world, Greek became the lingua franca of the ancient world, meaning, like English today, whether you like it or not, was the language that was spoken by all learned people so that they could communicate, do business, trade, and, um, and, and communicate through their, their various governments. If you were a wealthy citizen and you were educated, you were absolutely taught Greek. It meant you were part of the club. It meant that you could communicate with others and actually is one of the primary reasons that the New Testament was able to spread the word of God so rapidly in the ancient world because all learned people knew Greek and you could write Greek. The, the New Testament was written all in Greek um, <clears throat> and thus you could communicate with others just like today if you speak English. Um, almost all educated people on earth are taught English whether you like it or not. Again, I'm not making a, a statement in support or, or whatever. <clears throat> I'm just saying that's the way it is. <clears throat> By the third century BC, so many Jews spoke Greek, Hebrew was such a niche language for them that almost no learned Jews spoke Hebrew. Here's the problem. All of the ancient texts of the Old Testament, we think, were written 99% in Hebrew and about 1% in another language called Aramaic, which is very similar to, uh, <coughs> to Hebrew. Um, the problem is, if you are a learned person in the third century BC, you don't know Hebrew anymore. So if you go to the scroll of your local synagogue, and it wasn't a temple um, at that point, it was synagogues, how were you supposed to learn the ancient, um, the ancient uh, stories from the Bible? <clears throat> well, you were taught Greek. Well, so in the third century, a group of, of Jewish scholars decided to create a version of the Old Testament in Greek so that everyone could read it and know the Old Testament. And today we take advantage of the fact that you can get English versions of the Bible or, uh, depending on what language you speak, all major languages in the world have a version of the Bible written in that language. In the past, it wasn't like that. <clears throat> so the, the Septuagint was written sometime in the third century it's, it's called the LXX, and if I ever refer to the LXX, I'm talking about the Septuagint um, because it means 70. <clears throat> because supposedly 70 or 72 learned scholars miraculously um, translated the Old Testament into Greek and they all came up with the same translation. That's a whole different discussion. <clears throat> um, 
So now we have the Old Testament in Greek. Well, what happens? By the time of Jesus, this is the version that virtually all, I would say all, of the New Testament writers are familiar with. In fact, as we look back through history, there's a lot, a lot to this, as we look at the New Testament, the, the citations of the Old Testament are from the Septuagint, primarily not the Hebrew text. Now, that, let that sink in for just a minute. The New Testament writers who were Christians, who were spreading Christianity, were citing from the Greek version of the Old Testament, not the Hebrew version. Uh, there, is, there is some citation from the Hebrew. Most of it is Greek. Fast forward to about 100 AD. The temple has been destroyed, okay? Um, <clears throat> Christianity is exploding in popularity. The Jews have almost universally been oppressed because of their revolt, the Jewish civil war against Rome in 70 AD. And the Jews are PO'd about all of this. They make a decision around, I'd say, 90 AD at the Council of Yamina. This, this is actually, I'm going into a whole tangent here. The point is, as soon as the Christians started mass producing the Greek citations of the Old Testament to promote what they saw as prophecy pointing to Jesus as the Messiah, the Jews very quickly nixed the Septuagint as their primary source for the Old Testament. They said, we're not going to use the Septuagint anymore because those Christians keep using it to, to support Jesus as the Messiah. We are going to go back to the original Hebrew manuscripts and come up with a what we would call authoritative Hebrew version of the Old Testament. That work took hundreds of years until, until the Middle Ages, <clears throat> until about, you know, I'm gonna get my dates wrong here, I think it's around 1000 AD, give or take, a group of Jews called the Masoretes decided to put a lot of work into reconstructing what they said was the original Hebrew version of the Old Testament. That is what we call the Masoretic text. So if I ever say <coughs> Septuagint, Septuagint, that's the Greek Old Testament. If I say Masoretic text, that is the Hebrew. That is the Middle Ages Hebrew Old Testament. Now, you might say to yourself, Brian, the Middle Ages, so in 1000 AD, a bunch, of, a bunch of people wrote what was supposed to be the original Hebrew that was written thousands of years earlier. Well, we actually have the ability now to go back and kind of do a control on if the Masoretes were right. How do we know? And we do. We, we, we know now that the Masoretic version of the Old Testament is really close to what was probably the original Hebrew. How do we know that? What great discovery do we have? The Dead Sea Scrolls. You guys listen. This is awesome. Oh. I thought it was someone Google. Thanks. That too. <laughs> Google it. Wikipedia? Google it. Yeah. Well, that's where we get all of our knowledge, right? I don't know. Thank you. Yes. The Dead Sea Scrolls written in this period, uh, found in 1940, in the 1940s, confirm the current versions of the Hebrew Old Testament that have been passed on for hundreds, thousands of years, do seem to be very similar to the original Hebrew because they had them back then. The, the Dead Sea community or the Essenes had Hebrew versions of the Old Testament. In fact, 
they didn't have a lot of Greek versions of the Old Testament. Why? Because they were Orthodox. They didn't like the fact that Hebrew scholars had translated the original text into Greek, and so they kept a lot of the original. All right, that took 15 minutes. Uh, that's what the Hebrew uh, Masoretic text is, in case you're wondering. Let's talk about what we really came here to talk about today, and that is for Samuel. This is the end. The end of the line for Saul. Gosh, that guy. He's been on quite a roller coaster. Um, where are we at? Very briefly, <coughs> Saul is the king, the first anointed king of Israel. He is pursuing David, who has been anointed by Samuel, the last judge of Israel, as the next king of Israel. Saul, out of jealousy and fear, has been pursuing David to kill him because he sees David as a threat to him. David is on the run and has been traveling all over this region that we call Canaan or Israel to escape from Saul. At some point, I think it's there, I could be wrong. At some point, David actually flees to the land of the Philistines, which is the the coastal region here of of this area that we call Israel or Canaan or Palestine. And he he and his people settle in what's called Ziklag. Couldn't couldn't come up with a better name, right? Ziklag. Um, It's like taser face. I don't know. (laughs) Ziklag, because it sounds cool. Him, a few hundred of his closest followers, his military uh, uh, followers and their wives and their children follow him and settle in this Philistine town of Ziklag, which is essentially given to him by the Philistines. <clears throat> a lot of crazy stuff. Go back and look at the old videos if you want to understand what's going on here. But essentially, David, we think, is trying to um, learn from the Philistines. He's hiding from Saul because Saul's not going to follow him into the Philistine territory, but he's also getting real close to his Philistine uh, friends and neighbors to learn from them. Remember, the Philistines are a far superior military race. They are are very advanced technologically, militarily. They have great organization. The five cities of the Philistines, very tight confederation, who are a constant threat to the Israelites. David has settled there and has become buddy-buddy with one of the kings of of the uh, Philistine cities. Last week, we talked about Saul and his end game. Saul, on the run, clear that God has said, I am not going to support you anymore as king. Saul instead goes to a medium, a necromancer, to ask what is going to happen. And long story short, gets the message that his time on earth is about over. In fact, he's got about 24 hours to live, in which he will go up against the Philistines and at some point he will die. And stricken with grief, uh, he he uh, he's very he's very upset and and rightfully so. That brings us to chapter twenty nine. This is another reminder that the Bible is not written chronologically. We're going to start in chapter twenty nine. I'm going to ask for a volunteer here. Chapter twenty nine rewinds a few days. So when you start to read chapter twenty nine, don't get confused. Like we just read about the witch of Endor, and after that, now it seems like. All this other stuff is happening in, in, in the Philistine land, but it's said that he's only got 24 hours to live. Yeah, that's because all this stuff in chapter 29 took place maybe a week or two before chapter 28. <clears throat> so let's go ahead and read chapter 29. The end game is upon us. Verses 1 to 11. See, they're not that hard. 1 to 11. Who'd like to do that? I can do that. Thank oh, you, sir. Wow, I was ah, <laughs> you guys are overachievers. <clears throat> I don't want to get stuck with the 25 verse. That was smart. Yeah. <laughs> 
The entire Philistine army now mobilized at Aphek, and the Israelites camped at the spring in Jezreel. As the Philistine rulers were leading out their troops in groups of hundreds and thousands, David and his men marched at the rear with King Ashish. Or is it Achish? Very good, sir. <laughs> but the Philistine commanders demanded, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish told them, This is David, the servant of King Saul of Israel. He's been with me for years, and I've never found a single fault in him from the day he arrived until today. But the Philistine commanders were angry. Send him back to the town you've given him, they demanded. He can't go into battle with us. What if he turns against us in battle and becomes our adversary? Is there any better way for him to reconcile himself with his master than by handing our heads over to him? Isn't this the same David about whom the women of Israel sing in their dances? Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands? So Achish finally summoned David and said to him, I swear by the Lord that you have been a trustworthy ally. I think <clears throat> you should go with me into battle, for I've never found a single flaw in you from the day you arrived until today. But the other Philistine rulers won't hear of it. Please don't upset them, and but go back quietly. What have I done to deserve this treatment, David demanded. What have you ever found in your servant that I can't go and fight the enemies of my lord the king. But Achish insisted, as far as I'm concerned, you're as perfect as an angel of God, but the Philistine commanders are afraid to have you with them in the battle. <clears throat> now get up early in the morning and leave with your men as soon as it gets light. So David and his men headed back into the land of the Philistines while the Philistine army went on to Jezreel. Now you may be reading that, and at face value saying, what the heck is happening here? Wait a minute, Brian, you said David was the anointed king of Israel. Why is he, why is he working with the Philistines to, about to ride into battle against the Israelites? Tell me, as you may ask yourself that question, how we got here. Well, he was, he was fleeing from Saul, <clears throat> ended up going into Philistia, Philistine territory, hung out with Achish, and stayed. I thought it was funny here where he said, yeah, I've known you for years, and it was 16 months is what he really knew, but he was he kind of became a, an ally <clears throat> to the enemy, somewhat. I mean, he was yeah. kind of duped him a little bit, but. I just think about Akish must be like, you know, if he could look back on this, look back and read this, he'd be like, boy, I look like a real moron. I look like a real A blank blank. <laughs> I like how he's like, you're like an angel from heaven. <laughs> like, oh no, Face David palm. is against you yeah. the whole time. I found it interesting here that he says, I've, I've not found anything, nothing wrong. You've done nothing wrong. I was, I was curious what, what he was measuring that mm -hmm. against. Just goodness of men or the, you know, because I mean, did he really believe, did Akish believe in God? Was he, did he have some, hmm? you know, Deuteronomical knowledge? How is, yeah, how has David gotten to the point where Akish trusts him? What has been David been doing this whole time? He's been fighting the marauders. He's been doing the legwork. 
against the enemies of the Philistines, who happen to also be the enemies of who? Of Israel. Achish. Yeah. It's like face palm, another face palm. Um, what has David been saying to Achish? Yeah. David has been lying. David started with a few little lies here and there. Oh, these guys are my enemies. I'm on your side, Achish. I'm all about it. And I'm going to go prove it to you. I'm going to go beat up on a bunch of these towns and I'm going to get the plunder and bring it back to you. I'm going to show you that I'm a good guy. What has David dug himself into? It's a hole. He's dug himself into a hole. What happens when you lie? Perpetuates another lie and another lie. It snowballs. There's no such thing as a little lie. Remember a few weeks ago, we had, we had the, the series. Tiny lies magnified. Why? A little lie here and there goes a long way to snowballing into something completely out of control. In that case, that lie resulted in many deaths. A horrible situation. And now it's only gotten worse. Now, Akish, it seems, has come to David to say, all right, today's the day, my boy. You've proven yourself for the last year and a half. We're riding out to attack Israel. In fact, I have word that Saul himself is going to be leading this battle, and this is our chance to go and blow it all up. David is stuck between a rock and a hard place. What if he says no? He's got 300 men. What if he says no? You're done, dude. You're toast. So he rides into battle. He rides into battle. Now, I can, now, I'm not going to put words into David's mouth or his, or his mind. I can tell you that scholars have poured over this for how many? 3,000 years, trying to understand and explain what's going on in David's mind. I'll tell you what I think, which is probably exactly wrong because I say it. I think David is ready to ride into battle saying, I don't know what the heck is about to happen here. I think in one way, David might be saying to himself, you know he's in the back, first of all. It says it. He's riding out in the back. I think one thing you can look at this and say is he's going to ride out way behind everyone else. He's going to see what happens. Now, let's say Israelites win. What's David going to do? Turn on the Philistines, maybe? Maybe turn on the Philistines. Maybe turn around to say, oh, yeah, see, I was the secret guy all along. Yeah. Kill these guys. Yeah. What if the Philistines win? It wasn't me. I had nothing to do with it. But if they win, what's probably going to happen to Saul? Saul dies. He goes back to Israel as king, and he didn't have to kill him. I think David sees this as, I, oh, on one hand, I have no idea what the heck I'm about to do here. On the other hand, he's like, I kind of have two, good op- two somewhat good options here, no matter what happens. This is all going to kind of work out for me. But he's ready to ride out into battle. But we also know he's a brilliant yes. military strategist. Yes. You know, he wins all of his battles. Mm-hmm. Like he's very talented very militarily. So I think, you know, no matter what happens, yeah. he's going to find a way that he's going to, you know, win. We think I that, right? We can say, we can think that. Um, we, we said last week, uh, David, David seems to be the kind of guy that says to himself, I like to keep my friends close and my enemies closer. Yes. yes. <laughs> kind of seems God has bailed him out. In this yeah. That's what I was going to get to here. Yep. You know, it, fortunately, it didn't have to come to 
whatever Dick and David's mind yeah. is going to be the scenario. And yeah. God says, you know, you've been screwing up here. We're just going to use this scenario to let you save face and go back and get out of this battle and not have to fight the Israelites. And this is exactly it. This is exactly it. God is looking at all this saying, okay, I'm going to get you off the hook now. I'm going to get you off the hook. In fact, I'm going to do a few things here that are going to really set up everything so that you have no choice but to go back and lead Israel. Um, and we're going to read that in, in 30 and 31 here. In fact, why don't we just read 30 right now, get through that, and then we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about this whole situation. Um, let's do 31 to 30. We'd like to do that. I can do it. That's <clears throat> On the third day, when David and his men arrived at Ziklag, he found that the Amalekites had raided southern Judah and Ziklag, attacking Ziklag and burning it. So they captured the women and everyone, young and old, but they had not killed anyone. They had only taken them away. When David and his men came to Ziklag, they found the town had been burned and their wives, sons, and daughters had been taken away as prisoners. Then David and his army cried loudly until they were too weak to cry anymore. David's two wives had also been taken, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, from Carmel. The men in the army were threatening to kill David with stones, which greatly upset him. <laughs> Each man was sad and angry because his sons and daughters had been captured. But David found the strength in the Lord his God. David said to Abathar the priest, Bring me the holy vest. Then David asked the Lord, Should I chase the people who took our families? Will I catch them? And the Lord answered, Chase them. You will catch them, and you will succeed in saving your families. David and the 600 men with him came to the Bezwar Ravine where some of the men stayed. David and 400 men kept up the chase. The other 200 men stayed behind because they were too tired to cross the ravine. They found an Egyptian in a field and brought him to David. They gave the Egyptian some water to drink and some food to eat. And they gave him a piece of fig cake and two clusters of raisins. Then he felt better because he had not eaten any food or drunk any water for three days and nights. David asked him, Who is your master? Where do you come from? He answered, I am an Egyptian, the slave of an Amalekite. Three days ago, my master left me because I was sick. We had raided the southern area of the Carathites, the land of Judah, and the southern area of Caleb. We burned Ziklag as well. David asked him, Can you lead me to the people who took our families? He answered, Yes. If you promise me before God that you won't kill me or give me back to my master, then I will take you to them. So the Egyptian led David to the Amalekites. They were lying around on the ground, eating and drinking and celebrating with the things they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from Judah. David fought them from sunset until the evening of the next day. None of them escaped, except 400 young men who rode off on their camels. David got his two wives back and everything the Amalekites had taken. Nothing was missing. David brought back everyone young and old, sons and daughters. He recovered the valuable things and everything the Amalekites had taken. David took all the sheep and cattle, and his men made these animals go in front, saying, They are David's prize. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too tired to follow him, who had, stayed at, who had stayed at the Bezwar Ravine. They came out to meet David and the people with him. When he came near, David greeted the men at the ravine. But the evil men and troublemakers amongst those who followed David said, Since these 200 men didn't go with us, we shouldn't give them any of the things we recovered. Just let each man take his wife and children and go. David answered, No, my brothers, don't do that after what the Lord has given us. 
He has protected us and given us the enemy who attacked us. Who will listen to what you say? The share will be the same for the one who stayed with the supplies as for the one who went into battle. All will share alike. David made this an order and rule for Israel, which continues even to this day. When David arrived in Ziklag, he sent some of the things he had taken from the Amalekites to his friends, the leaders of Judah. He said, here's a present for you from the things we took from the Lord's enemies. David also sent some things to the leaders of Bethel, Ramoth in the southern part of Judah, Jatir, Ararar, Sifmoth, Eshtemoth, Rakel, the cities of the Jeremelites and the Kenites, Hormah, Bor, Ashan, Ash, whatever, Hebron, and the people in all the other places where he and his men had been. <coughs> I like how... Buying political favor. Isn't this great? This yeah, is great. What do you guys... Yeah, so he's buying... That's exactly it, Rodney. He's greasing the... He knows how this works. Dude, this guy is... I mean, he's a military... Brilliant military commander. He's also a brilliant politician. Yeah. And nowadays, that has a very negative thing. <laughs> what else do you take from this? It was like the first charity right there. He's like... Huh. I mean... You know, I stand on a conservative. Mm-hmm. I work for my money. Right. We should give my hard-earned money to those losers. And that's, you know, I, I guess I'm wicked and worthless mm-hmm. with that attitude. Good. What do you guys think about that, gals? He had a very strong, like, idea of how things should go. Yes. Like, in the past, like when... Well, and it's going to happen again. But um, like when people come to him and tell him things um, that he doesn't agree with, like he's very clear on like when people will come and tell him, like, "Oh yeah, I, I went and killed Saul." Nope, he goes and kills them. Like yeah. he's he has a very strong vision of like you know his men could have turned against him, you know, because he said, "No, these people should st- you know get a share." But he was very strong that, like, nope, they get a share, too. How is that different than Saul? He would cave to the pressure of anyone who... It couldn't be more different than night and day. Mm-hmm. They really couldn't. I, I agree with that. I like that. Of, uh, he has a lot of stamina because they were uh, fighting from sunset till the evening of the next day. But this is after they already rode from joining the five Philistine kings... Then they had to ride back to Ziklag. They find out it's burning. They cry till they are exhausted. Then they go and find this um, uh, guy from Egypt. Egyptian slave. Yeah. Then, they, then they follow him. Then they fight from sunset too. Why? Why did they fight with so much vigor? Well, they the need women and children. Yes, their family was captured. I don't know about you. I agree 100%. After I had to fix my roof for that, that two days, and I thought I could never like uh, pick up a glass again, much less a hammer, if I found out that my wife and my three kids were gone, I would have fought till the day I died. I mean, I wouldn't have slept until I got them back, and I think that really speaks. And what was going on there, too, wasn't they? I mean, they were celebrating. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, let's talk about this. Ziklag, what has happened here? What has happened here? The Philistines and the Israelites have all gathered in the northern part of this territory to fight a great battle. Okay, so let's just think about for a minute what's going on. 
Here's the region of what we call Israel. The 12 tribes inhabit this area. This is the Philistines. They're fighting in the northern area, which is a very fertile. Now, like I'm not an expert on the topography of Israel. This is just what I read. This fertile valley here is not only a key agricultural area, but a key strategic point because you can move very quickly from the coast into the inland and, and go up north and, and south again. They're gathering near Mount Gilboa in the Jezreel Valley. What has happened to all the armies then from the south? They've, they have emptied it out. They have gone north to fight. What are the Amalekites doing? Advantage. Licking their lips. Oh, look this at is what we do. Yes. <laughs> so this is a great opportunity and there's some other towns in here for the Amalekites who are just obviously thugs. I mean, it really sounds like they're not really a cohesive force at this point. They're just a, just a bunch of thugs to come in and easily take it. What happened at Ziklag that seems to be more miraculous here? The God's intervention is, is playing a part. They didn't kill anybody. Yes. <laughs> Which is surprising. Yes. This is completely different than other, other narratives in the Old Testament. And in fact, in antiquity, when you go in, you, know, you might take a few women <clears throat> for your, your uh, consorts, and you might take a few of the young people as slaves, but you're going to kill everybody else. You're going to kill all of the, the old people, um, certainly all of the, the men of fighting age you're going to kill. And what they don't, they keep them all alive and take them with them. And they take all of their stuff. So it sounds like while they burned the city, <laughs> that's another thing, they've kept everything with them. Why is God intervening here? How do you see God's hand intervening here in the big picture? Well, they, when they... When David's army and his band of guys came back, they see the city burned. And mm -hmm. so immediately they're thinking that all their families have been yep. killed. And they're pointing their finger at Mr. David, who had them yeah. out trailing yep. the Philistine army. Mm -hmm. um, and so he was going to be blamed yep. for what was going on. But what happens? I think also God is... Um he doesn't, they're going to have a natural tendency to want, they already have homes in Ziklag. This is it. When so the battles are over and Saul's dead, a lot of the men are going to want to just stay in Ziklag. This is where I was going to. that's their <laughs> house. And so God's burning it to the ground so they have nowhere, they, they can't go back there. This is a big stay. one. I think this is a big one. I think God knows, okay, it's the end game. You need to leave. You're not going to stay in the Philistine territory anymore. There's nowhere to go back home to. But also, David could have very well had a mutiny here. It, it sounds like he almost did. And yet, God <laughs> kept that from happening again. Um, I don't know about you, but if I found out that my women... And again, we don't really know, you know, no matter what the Egyptian says, my, 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 my family is probably dead. I would assume that they're probably dead. They carted him off and killed him or something like that. Um, I, I would have wanted to wring his neck. I, I think that I would have blamed David for all this... this bullcrap that he was dragging us around instead of guarding our women and children God kept him from <laughs> being mutinied you know what else David shows trust for God here <clears throat> he inquired yes. of the Lord gosh how rare is that <laughs> which is yeah I mean he, he kind of goes back and forth yep. with that a, yep. a lot seeks God's counsel this is so important he seeks God's counsel which as we remember from the stories of Saul, Saul really almost never asked 
God for guidance. And even if he did, he might have gone to Samuel. And then when he got the answer he didn't like, he you know, ripped his clothes. <laughs> he has a holy vest. I don't know if he has the holy vest, mm-hmm. but he has a holy vest. Mm-hmm. That and seems to be pretty big, doesn't it? it? Yeah. Yeah. Is Abathar, is he the guy who was the um, the only one who survived yes. that? Uh, yes. Okay. I think it's the holy vest. I think it is. I think it's the, the ephod, mm-hmm. which has a lot of weight here. And so he's going to the priest as he should. He's going to God as he should. <clears throat> he's asking for guidance. And God is telling him, okay, fine. You came to me. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. How awesome is that? It's pretty, it's pretty simple. I mean, it's just... It's like, you trusted me, I trust you. Yeah. Kind of a transaction. Mm-hmm. It's pretty cool. I've, uh, the, kind of the theme of the week for me this week was mm. even God uses even the really crappy stuff. Yeah. He, just, he just does. He just uses everything. Mm-hmm. And that's, I find it amazing, you know, <clears throat> in personal relationships for me that with my kids, let's say, mm-hmm. And, and I see my kid doing something wrong, and I want to, I want to correct them and fix it and change them and show them how wrong they were and all that stuff. And then there's something in me that's like, just it's okay, you know, they can do stupid stuff. Look at all the stupid stuff I've I've done. And yet, I had a conversation with somebody this week that she said, you know, I've had a, I've not lived the perfect life, but I'm not going to let my kids know that. Because, hmm. what, God only brings favor to the perfect ones? Or, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of, mm-hmm. you, know, you look all through this whole mm-hmm. story, and, you know, David does stupid things, and he does good things. Yep. Goes back and forth, and God is faithful, faithful, mm-hmm. faithful, 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 mm-hmm. right through all of it. Mm-hmm. This is no, no exception, this mm-hmm. story. They're yeah. humans just like us. Yeah. I mean, simple people just like us. So, <clears throat> I was making all this up. Would I include all that? <laughs> I mean, really. What, what value would there be if I was making all this stuff up just to, you know, make a society that, you know, I'm, I'm the priestly class, so I'm going to write all this stuff and invent it so that people bring me good, goodies <clears throat> and do what I tell them to do. Why would I include all this stuff about flawed human nature? Why? I probably wouldn't. I mean, yeah. Unless your motive was to show the true nature of God. Now, and in that case, then you're not making it up. <laughs> you're not making it up. I mean, the Bible's not a story. I mean, it's uh, it's uh, written to show God's love, not yep. holy people. Mm. <laughs> it's the story of God showing his love to people, regardless of. or in spite of everything we do wrong. What do non-Christians think this is? Fiction. Fiction. What else? It's made up stories. Yeah. A book of shame. Shame. Like, yeah. Shame on you. For shame on you. Being Why? So bad. Because these people are all perfect. Yeah. They don't know. They don't read it. Yeah. Wait a minute. David is flawed. Moses was flawed. Abraham was flawed. Wow. I'm flawed. There's a <laughs> prostitute in the line of Jesus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what? Women found it, it Jesus empty too. Just a yeah. prostitute, but a foreign prostitute. Ooh, yeah, check all those off, right? Oh. God killing people. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. 
but that in and of itself shows God's nature as well is that mm -hmm. you know he's not just yes he's a loving and gracious God mm -hmm. but he does also have wrath and mm -hmm. you know vengeance mm -hmm. and you know he's got ultimate authority now, and after seeing all these stories you think of Malachites and the Philistines and all these other steens around there um, <laughs> would kind of give up saying don't mess with God's people. Don't mess with the Israelites. But why do they? Because what? They keep winning from time to time. Yeah. Why do they keep winning? Because <laughs> the Israelites <laughs> fallen out. That's exactly it. So maybe it is worth fighting them, right? Until, until David. And during the time of David, you will see what, what Tim is alluding to here. That because David follows God and believes in what God is saying and gets his people right and it takes 40 years, he will expand the territory of Israel. He will crush his enemies. The Philistines really aren't a thing after David. I mean, they're really done after that because he, has, he, doesn't, he doesn't take over Philistia and wipe them all out, but he breaks them enough so that they're never really a threat to Israel again. The, the Amalekites are never, they, they come back. We'll talk a little bit more about this. You know, the Moabites, there's all these ites that surround Israel that will never really be a threat to them again. It's, it's not until, <clears throat> I would say, obviously, you know, the 8th century in which a very foreign power is finally, Assyria is really going to rise to threaten Israel. It's not their name. Syria will be an ongoing thorn in the side. Um, we'll go back and forth with Syria, but at some point, Syria becomes a vassal of Israel. So the, the, the Syrian king is bowing to Solomon. <laughs> and then, of course, Babylon and, 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 uh, and Rome and all that. So, yeah. The story is, even, even going back, mm -hmm. killing the lion and the bear. Yep. And, you know, David is, I see David as, he's kind of put together this, this history of, I can trust God. Yeah. I don't always. I don't always yep. put my trust in But, I mean, it's no different than our lives as we grow a little bit older and yeah. we grow in our trust mm -hmm. of Him because we have history now. We have something to look back on. We can't just read this and go, this is what it says, so I guess yep. I'm just, just going to live that way forever. We're nice with but we don't. Yeah. Yep. So we need to have those mm -hmm. times where we didn't trust Him and things mm -hmm. went south and we, we did trust Him and came through. And it's going to be evident moving forward, like you just said, when David starts to trust him. Mm -hmm. in everything. Mm -hmm. And while the Bible clearly shows flaws people <coughs> and sins and imperfect situations at the point, is there a glorification of those sins or flaws? Mm -hmm. You know, it, sat around with with people and listen to conversation about you know their youthful indiscretions mm -hmm. we'll say you know you talk about telling what you tell your kids and some of the stuff you've done well how are you telling them mm -hmm. are you doing it in kind of this braggadocious ah. way or are you mm -hmm. doing it in a way that says these are the mistakes I made don't repeat them mm -hmm. yeah and this is the great hardship that's it in my life 
because of those that I had to overcome. Mm-hmm. I want to teach you mm-hmm. my mistakes, what not to do in your life. I love this. This is it. This you is know, exactly it. When you make mistakes, there's <coughs> no grace and acceptance. It's never too late. Right it's never too late until you're dead. Don't make that mistake. Okay. Let's read the final chapter. It's a short one, too. Going to finish it out here with the end game, the real end game. 31, 1 to 13. Who would like to read that for me? <clears throat> Thank you, ma'am. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them, and many fell dead on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malikshua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come run me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men died together that same day. When the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled, and the Philistines came and occupied them. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his armor, and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. They put his armor in the temple of the Ashtaroth and fastened his body to the wall of Beth-shan. When the people of Jabesh-gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their valiant men marched through the night to Beth-shan. They took down the bodies of Saul and his sons from the wall of Beth-shan and went to Jabesh, where they burned them. Then they took their bones and buried them under a timorisk tree at Jabesh, and they fasted seven days. The end. (laughs) To be continued. Thoughts? Some really weird rituals there. Yep. I was thinking about when, was it, Saddam Hussein, when when we got him? Mm -hmm. I always thought, what they do with him? Where? Mm We never saw a funeral. We never saw, boy, you know, where did he go? Because mm-hmm. they didn't post him on a wall for us to all look mm-hmm. and see, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, felt, I thought that was kind of weird that did it really happen type of thing. These guys made no bones about it. <coughs> Stuck it. They hung his body on the wall. Mm-hmm. They're going to look for, you know, prizes mm-hmm. after the battle. He's a big prize. Huge. Huge symbol. Yep. Be like the Israelites are broken, their king is dead. Forty years. I mean, he was a thorn in their side. And all his sons. So yes. His line is ended. That's basically. it. Jonathan is dead. David's best friend. Jonathan's son survives. We'll talk about him in a few weeks. Look, paints a picture of where Israel's at. They are. They ran from their city. Yes. They, I mean, totally yep. Disarray. Who didn't run from their city? Why? Why did they come and help and get Saul's body? What happened? Saul's very first battle that he fought, what did he do? 
He rescued them. This was one of the, this is one of the positive aspects of Saul's reign. One of his very first things he did was he went out to battle and, bought, and fought the enemies of Israel and freed Jabesh Gilead. So he has a lot of credit with them. One of the few things he did right. Yeah. Beth Shan is one of those interesting archaeological places. There's a lot. There's a lot of really cool stuff if you Google this. Um, there's a giant tell, which means mountain or hill in Hebrew, um, and it's essentially the city of Beth Shan was was continuously occupied from the Bronze Age all the way till the Middle Ages. There's tons of stuff there, tons of pottery, and and artifacts that can be um, attributed to both the Philistines and the Israelites, um, and then eventually the Arabs after they kind of came in, but then that was the end of it. Um, fascinating place. Proof that this happened. I mean, there's proof here of, of, these, of these cities that are mentioned in the Bible, that they were occupied by the people we think occupied them. So Saul is done. This is the end of Saul, and, and a horrible end. Kind of, he had it coming, obviously. To Laura's point, his house is kind of done. Now, it's not completely done. We'll get into this next week. Um, one of his sons does survive. And is <laughs> this, this begins a period of turmoil in Israel. So you may think to yourself, oh, okay, now David's the king and he gets to rule the whole thing. No, it's not going to be that easy. There's going to be some hurdles here for David to consolidate his power on this entire region. He is going to, and I, you know, skipping ahead, he's going to control Judah first, and then he's going to slowly absorb Israel and, and kind of unify that. And then he's going to really start to expand his kingdom from there. Um, but the house of Saul is essentially gone. And, and of course, God has not anointed Saul's house to continue. God has decided that it is the house of David that is going to now rule officially the people of Israel going forward. Going forward to where? Where does David's line end? Jesus. Yes, isn't this great? We do the you know we do the twenty five days of uh, of Christmas and we do our devotions and we have our Jesse tree and we talk about you know the the Old Testament talking about the stump or root of Jesse and the branch that that is that it springs from that and this is all biblical, folks. This is a line that will continue. The authoritative line of the kings of Israel will march forward with an interruption and then spring forward at the end with Jesus himself, the legitimate and final ruling king of Israel. <clears throat> Any final thoughts on First Samuel or questions? Kind of interesting there that the Saul's servant wouldn't, he wouldn't kill Saul, but he would immediately just kill himself once Saul was done. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of stuff that stands out to me like you know if I was that guy mm-hmm. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. I mean that really kind of shows what how much clout they put on yeah. Saul and his mm-hmm. the king mm-hmm. and, you know mm-hmm. you know, never you know Donald Trump killed himself I'd probably be like for him. Yeah. I'm not going to, like, because, uh, mm-hmm. you know, my king is dead. Mm-hmm. I think the armor bearer kind of uh, <coughs> kudos for, you know, 
he was given a sinful command mm-hmm. that he knew it was wrong to mm-hmm. kill the king. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't going to, even though his king was telling mm-hmm. him to. I mean, we can even take that to other parts of life. Yeah. If someone's telling you to do something, someone in authority telling you to do something that you know is wrong, mm-hmm. you shouldn't do it, even though... There you go. There you go. Even though you might suffer for it. Don't meet as a church. I'm just going to say it. You're forbidden to meet as a church. No. <laughs> I'm going to meet. You can throw me in jail. You can take my house away. You can take all my money. I'm not going to do it. I serve a higher power. And that power is the one I answer to, not the government of the United States. Okay. Now the lights go off, right? (laughs) All right, well, thanks. We'll end a little early. Uh, Appreciate it. Next week we'll pick up, like I said, we're going to go right to 2 Samuel and talk about uh, King David. And, you know, uh, King David is like one of those uh, (coughs) ballistic missiles. He has this great trajectory until halfway through. (laughs) And then it's kind of... (laughs) Comes crashing back down because he is imperfect. We'll talk about that. Not a perfect king. Uh, he makes some, some serious mistakes, um, but uh, a fascinating story that I feel like we need to cover and, and can't just skip to something else. So thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.